You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 106 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and special guest and author, J.B. Cheney. Janie to her friends. Hello, Victoria and Janie. Hello. Before we get started, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Uh, Victoria, why don't you go ahead and go first? Sure. Thanks, Alexis. I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am one of the original co-founders here at the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, typically, I say I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, uh, but currently that is not true. Uh, I am outside of Atlanta, Georgia, crashing at my in-law's house right now, um, going on some job interviews in the Atlanta area in preparation for our move here. Uh, so um, I have not seen my husband in about a week and a half. It will be 19 more days until I see him again, not that I am counting. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're, we're both in this really weird um, in between space, in between houses, in between jobs. Uh, so that's, uh, that's me in strange limbo land. All right. Well, we'll hope that those days go quickly for you. Um, I am Alexis Neal and uh, I live in Southern Missouri with my husband Coyle of the city of man podcast, um, and our two little boys. Uh, we're on summer vacation now. Uh, so that's, kind of nice, but um, my youngest is going to start summer fake preparatory kindergarten to get him acclimated to that before the fall, and so I'm, I'm having no small amount of anxiety over uh, over that. Um, but uh, more relevant to the podcast, I am by training an attorney uh, and have been working as an adjunct at Southwest Baptist University, um, where my husband's on the political science faculty, and I just teach a variety of law-related courses at the undergraduate level there. But I'm on summer break, so I'll have to think about that right now. Um, and we have the pleasure today of having a very special guest. Um, we are be talking about uh, writing strong girls, that is strong, sort of in quotes, uh, female characters in middle grade fiction and young adult fiction. And we're very uh, fortunate today to have with us someone who has actually published fiction in those specific categories, uh, and that is uh, author J.B. Cheney. Uh, so, Janie, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to us, tell our listeners a little bit about you. Okay, thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm um, Janie Chaney, and that's the reason I use my initials, J.B., because Janie Chaney's a little silly on a book jacket. Um, I have been writing for several years. I have written for World Magazine for many years. Uh, currently, I'm a senior writer for World Magazine, so I have a regular column, and I do... Um, every other week, commentaries on the World Magazine podcast. Uh, 
concurrently with that, I write fiction. I have written uh, 12 or 13 books, but I have published six, four with Random House and two with Sourcebooks. All of them are middle grade fiction, and we should have an opportunity to talk about that as the podcast goes along. So I'll leave it there for now. All right. Thank you, Janie. Uh, so, um, as I said, we're going to be talking today about what it means to write strong female characters in uh, middle grade and young adult fiction. Uh, so our first segment today, we're going to start uh, for our knowing segment, uh, talking a little bit about our background as readers uh, of um, uh, young adult or middle grade fiction in the case of uh, Victoria or myself, and uh, in Janie's case, both uh, as a reader and uh, an author of that sort of fiction. Um, so we're going to talk a little about some of our favorite strong girls. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we'll go ahead and, and start with that. Uh, Victoria, do you have any favorite strong girls that, that you recall from your formative years? Yes. Um, I, have been thinking about this a lot, um, the past week, week and a half, because as I said, I'm currently, uh, staying in my in-laws house in Georgia. And one of the things that I've been doing since I've been back is uh, spending a lot of time babysitting and hanging out um, with my two nieces who are nine and three and uh, are almost nine, eight and a half ish. Uh, and the, the older one is trying to uh, pick out summer reading books. And so I've, I've been kind of going through that, uh, list of girls in my head and, and recommending some things to her. Uh, I'm going to shout out two characters who were very important to me, who are, I think, probably a little too old for her right now, um, but are more in the middle grades um, area. So I want to talk about uh, Marianne Spires from Anne M. Martin's long running Babysitter's Club series and also uh, Margaret Simon uh, from the YA classic uh, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. Uh, and those two characters are different from each other and important to me for different reasons. Um, did either of you grow up reading the Babysitter's Club? I did not. I did not either. That's before. That was later. That was later than my time. Okay. Uh, so I did. Um, my friends and I were obsessed with them. We held mock uh, meetings and had parties where we were all um, different members of the Babysitter's Club. Uh, and I was always Marianne because Marianne is uh, the club secretary. She's a really good writer and reader. She takes notes. Um, she is shy and quiet and has uh, brown hair. Um, she's described as mousy uh, several times uh, in the book. And so I, I related to her just because she looked and acted a lot like me. Um, but something that is really interesting about her character, she's very emotionally perceptive. She understands people's feelings, um, also a thing that I share. And my favorite thing that Anne M. Martin does, um, because Marianne is so empathetic and emotionally intelligent, she is the first of the members of the Babysitter's Club to get a steady boyfriend, uh, which is cool because that never happens to the shy, quiet girl, right? Um, so I, I liked that bit of nuance in the character that uh, because she's good at emotionally connecting, she's kind of the first person in her friend group to take that step, uh, which made her seem 
impossibly sophisticated and grown up to me, even though in the book they're only 14. Uh, so that's the first uh, character that was really important to me. And the other one, uh, Margaret from Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Uh, I really enjoyed because uh, two reasons. One, there's a lot of her thinking through her own religious heritage in that book because she is um, one of her parents is Christian and the other is Jewish. And she's kind of trying to figure out um, what her own faith is supposed to look like. And even though I do not come uh, from an interfaith marriage, I did go through a really difficult phase as a teenager where I tried to figure out um, specifically in regards to women in the Southern Baptist Church where I was raised, um, sort of what my faith looked like separate from the faith that my parents raised me. And so I appreciate that she goes through that struggle as well. Uh, and also, um, you know, what I remember about that book is what everybody remembers about that book. There's a lot of um, body weirdness and puberty weirdness and trying to figure out her first period. And uh, if that strange chest exercise will make her breasts bigger, uh, it doesn't for her. It didn't for me. I don't think it did for anyone who ever tried to do that. Uh, we must increase our bust exercise. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that. <laughs> Uh, so I, I appreciate the, the humor and candor um, with which puberty is um, in, explored in that book in a really age-appropriate way. Uh, and in, in doing research for this episode, I found out that uh, the book has been updated since uh, I read it when I was 14, and there's not that uh, strange belt thing attached to the pad anymore, which I had to get my mother to explain to me um, because I had never seen one of those by the time I was reading it in the 90s. Uh, apparently, it is uh, a uh, sanitary pad or in some places you can get additions where they talk about tampons. So um, good that that'll be a little less confusing for future teenagers. Right. <laughs> Uh, you're talking my era there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, well, I did not read the, uh, the Babysitter's Club in part because I loathed babysitting and I think I just couldn't get over that initial psychological hurdle. Um, I was very heavily into any books that were girl and horse or girl and dog. Uh, so your, you know, Julie of the Wolves, uh, type of books or, um, Saddle Club. Uh, Were you into Saddle Club? I wasn't into, into that as much. Um, I'm trying to think of the ones that had girls. Cause I, I read a lot of them. Honestly, a lot of them I read, they would just have a male protagonist. Cause I was really, really big into like the black stallion. And then there were like all the other colors of stallions. So there was like a red stallion and a bay stallion. And mm -hmm. a, I don't even know how many other ones. Um, but I read all of those, um, and, and honestly, I would even read the ones where the animal was the protagonist. So like the, the dog ones where it was really the dog's story and there might be people in it. So, um, but sometimes there was a girl who was bonding heavily with the dog um, or honestly, like I said, as much uh, as likely to be a boy, honestly. But um, so some of those were really, I was really into. And then um, anywhere a girl was lacking in the stereotypical feminine graces. Um, I was never a particularly feminine child. 
so I really responded to characters like Cimmerine in Dealing with Dragons, um, who runs away from being a princess so she can work for a dragon and cook and clean and catalog the library and learn Latin. Um, and who gets in trouble for taking fencing lessons from the swordmaster and magic lessons from the court magician or whatever. Um, so those kinds of stories, um, I always responded more to um, a lot of the ones that didn't have the same, that didn't reflect the same social dynamics that I saw around me, but that took place somewhere else, um, either because they largely revolved around a, a, a girl and, a, and an animal, or because they took place just somewhere and some when else. Um, but but those were some of the ones I really liked. Anything where a girl was was not as feminine, or if she was um, particularly bright, because that was a huge part of my social identity, was the, the one who did well in school. Uh, so the stories like Matilda, um, where a girl would be um, kind of a fish out of water because of her academic abilities or, or intellectual abilities, um, and how she would turn that to good account. Um, so those are a couple that, that I remember responding more to um, and I do, I think I read Dealing with Dragons an embarrassing number of times um, growing up uh, just because it was funny and it was a fun little twist on, on fairy tales, which I'm still deeply fond of, uh, the sort of self-aware twists on uh, established stories, but because I also appreciated um, her interest in the aspects of the Damsels and Dragons uh, fiction paralleled my own wanting to know the latin or the magic or the sword fighting more than uh, i think they say how loud it is permissible to scream when a giant carries you away that was one of the lessons she had in her princess training um or what to say or how how low to bow before various ministers from different countries um so uh so yeah that was one that i responded to janie what about you how about um either either stories of, of strong girls that, that you really responded to as a reader mm -hmm. or that um, that popped up in the actual fiction that you wrote? Um, I was trying to think of, I can't think of any series heroines that really resonated with me or that I remember all these years later, but uh, the, the book that affected me the most powerfully when I was a middle grade reader, and I, I, I'd go back to the age of about 10 now. I think I was 9 or 10 when I read this book, and it's, it's called The Silver Sword by Ian Seralier, or Seralier. I'm not sure how he pronounced his name. Uh, the book is still around. It's been reissued under another title, but um, it's about three Polish children and a fourth that they pick up. They're, they live in Warsaw, and the story picks up during the last days of World War II. And um, the occupation ends, the Russians uh, have taken over their part of Poland. Their parents have been sent away to concentration camps during the course of the war, and now that the war is over, the children have the opportunity to go and find them, and they made this plan that they were all going to meet in Switzerland if they were separated. So that's the main part of the story, is their journey from Warsaw to Switzerland. The leader of the group is the oldest girl. Her name is Ruth, and Ruth is very much a, uh, a feminine girl, uh, she grows up very quickly because she finds herself in charge of her younger siblings and also other children in the neighborhood who have been left orphans. 
but through the journey, she just she develops so much as a character, and not not perfect. You know, she had her she had her failures and her faults, but she made I think Ruth made a really strong impression on me growing up uh, as someone who was not girlish, but she was she was strong in a very I would say womanly way. And um, I had some I had some strong female relatives in my family, so they were all good role models for me. I just responded to them in that in that particular way. So that that was the book that made the strongest impression on me. When I write when I write characters, I suppose uh, of my six published books, two of them have male leads, two of them have female leads. Uh, one has a uh, female protagonist, but also a very dynamic and powerful male presence. And then uh, another of my books, one of my more recent books, has actually nine protagonists, and five of them are boys, three of them are, I mean, uh, four of them are girls. I don't really think about mm, creating strong girl characters just to be strong girls. I just try to create strong characters. Um, and that's actually a great transition into our next segment on uh, reading, uh, because before we can talk about writing a strong girl, we have to talk about what we mean by a strong girl, uh, and specifically, what do we mean by strong? Uh, so as this is the Christian Feminist Podcast, we're going to try to think about both what it means to be uh, strong uh, from a more feminist perspective, and then also what does it mean to be strong um, for us as believers? So uh, Victoria, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Sure. So I'm going to start by discussing a little bit about an article from um, Bustle, which is a, a kind of third wave feminist webzine. Um, and this is an article from 2015 by Catherine M. Valenti. Uh, the title is Writing Strong Female Characters. That's a great goal, but I'd rather write strong kick heart characters. Uh, she talks about the idea that um, the strong female character, particularly in young adult literature, um, of which she is an author, has become its own kind of restrictive stereotype that we've kind of ping ponged back from um, a more traditional passive girl archetype and landed on the strong girl um, but that there are still some restrictions there um, for several reasons. And the first reason she mentions is tokenism, the idea that um, either there's only one um, female character in a uh, novel or a, a story, um, or if there's more than one, there's, she says, uh, very often, only one who really matters, I'm quoting now, the Hermione, the Katniss, the Princess Leia, the Black Widow, the one girl in a group of boys, the chosen one, the love interest, or the lone girl warrior. So she goes into um, this idea that when there's only one girl or one um, girl given any kind of dimension, that there's a lot of pressure put on that girl to... Um, kind of represent all of girlhood to, to be all things to all people. And that when that pressure is applied, you get a really flattened out uh, vision of what 
female strength is. Uh, she goes on to argue for um, complexity and nuance, not just in female characters, but in male characters. And she says, um, you know, all human beings are uh, strong emotionally and physically at some points and weak emotionally and physically at some points. And the way those traits interplay with one another is, is what it is to be human so that we should value that um, in both uh, male and female characters. Um, and two more things I wanted to point out um, about this article. One, she uses um, a metaphor from uh, tabletop role-playing games, games like Dungeons and Dragons. And she talks about um, the NPC, the non-player character, which is um, a character that your um, game master or your dungeon master creates a character sheet for in a tabletop game, but is not played by uh, someone else who's on the journey around the table. This is a character who has very few abilities. Um, they probably, if you're playing a computer role-playing game, only have three or four uh, statements that they say over and over kind of in a loop. They're just there to push the story forward. Uh, they're not really a fully realized person. And she uses um, that metaphor in connection with the tokenism that I already mentioned to talk about kind of the, the pitfalls of, um, of not representing women um, enough in numbers or in variation of qualities. Uh, and I thought that was a really cool metaphor to use. Um, and lastly, I think uh, a way that this article deviates from what I would call the typical or stereotypical mainstream feminist perspective is that it um, doesn't necessarily say that both agency and autonomy have to exist um, to create strength. You know, agency uh, is the idea that you uh, have motivation to accomplish action and autonomy is um, individuality of selfhood, that your definition of selfhood comes from being an individual. Um, most stereotypical feminist portrayals would say to have one, you have to have the other. Um, I think that sometimes too much autonomy, too much individualism, especially as a Christian feminist, um, is bad and can take you in selfish directions. And actually, if I look back at my own feminist progression, um, I got the most strength and the most agency when I relied on lessons that I learned from uh sort of the community of women around me. And I think um, Volunteer's mentions of, uh, of the necessity for female community and her invocations of things like the Bechdel test, which of course requires uh, at least two female characters to have in-depth conversations with one another about something other than a man. Uh, her invocations of those kinds of things um, say that community is important and that agency can exist without a kind of stringent stereotypical autonomy and I thought that was really cool. I like that point uh, that you're making Victoria because depending on how I guess depending on how that autonomy is defined um, you might also end up limiting the stories that you can tell um, about women who maybe existed in other 
settings or characters that have, for reasons external to themselves, some limitation on that. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm misunderstanding exactly what, what you mean by autonomy, but I could, I could see the benefit also in being able to tell stories about, um, about women or girls who've been in other situations than, um, than say, the, the modern American landscape, where hopefully for, for most of them, uh, agency and autonomy would be, uh, would be available. Um, uh, and I, I like you, I, I really liked the point that, that she made about uh, that tokenism and the way that the way that uh, robust representation frees you up to let girls or women be girls or women in different ways. Um, you don't have to pick what, uh, what it looks like to be a girl, one definition of that, and then um, have that be the representative uh, for your whole story. Um, you can have, uh, so in, for example, the Dealing with Dragons books, uh, Cimmerine doesn't like being a princess, isn't, isn't into all the princess stuff, um, goes and wants to work for a dragon, there makes best friends with a girl who hates working with the dragons, is terrified of the dragons, wants nothing more than to marry a prince and settle down. And they both get to be in the story. I mean, Cimmerine is the lead, but um, you have, even in some small way, multiple representations of what it can look like to be a girl. And then actually in those stories, the, the dragon that the princess Cimmerine goes to work for is a female dragon who ends up becoming the king of the dragons. And the dragons live what appears to be a gender undifferentiated sort of society where there's not a uh, real difference in how they relate to one another based on that. Um, but you have then yeah, a third female uh, character. And so um, the idea that, that you, you free up the pressure on yourself as a writer or as a reader to find one, um, one narrow definition of what strength looks like or what mm. being a girl, a real girl looks like by having many girls. And that if you just have a book with a lot of women, a lot of girls in it, then you can let, and she talks about that, letting, letting there be a Miss Havisham, letting there be different characters who um, express their identity in different ways. Uh, and we talked about some of these ideas in, in some other episodes. We'll, we'll put those uh, links to those in the show notes about trying to figure out what does it mean to be feminine or what does it mean to be uh, to be a girl. But that that idea of representation um, uh, as an effective means of alleviating that pressure, uh, I thought was a really helpful uh, helpful suggestion. Janie, did you have uh, thoughts on that bustle piece? I really liked what she said about, and this was included in the title, of she wanted to write strong, kick-heart characters. And what it boils down to is there, it's not a gender thing. It's, uh, just quoting from what she says here, emotional honesty. I liked what she said about that. Emotional honesty is still kind of a radical thing on literature mountain and off. Um, and I think what she means by that is that we're... Um, we're so attuned to what critics are going to say or what the, uh, what the current woke sensibility is going to say that we tend to, um, you know, endue our characters with qualities that they wouldn't necessarily have if they were for real. <laughs> and um, I, I think that's what she means by emotional honesty. It's just being true to the character as he or she is with their strengths and vulnerabilities. And it's not really a gender thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Victoria, did you have anything else you wanted to mention about the feminist perspective before we move on to the Christian perspective? 
no, I think we've pretty much uh, covered it. I think I... Okay. Um, well, moving on then, uh, so um, as, as you alluded to in, in your comments, um, our calculus is a little different as believers. Um, so you mentioned it specifically in terms of um, being careful not to overvalue autonomy, things like that. Um, because that way can lead to things like selfishness or, or, or what have you. So um, for a jumping off point for our discussion about strong, uh, strong girl or what does strength mean, um, from a Christian perspective, um, I have a piece here from Desiring God uh, written by Paul Maxwell, um, and the, the title is Real Men Love Strong Women. Um, and the, the framing sort of for, for this particular piece is addressing uh, the old line of, of men being intimidated by strong women. And so the author is specifically addressing um, strength through this lens of uh, a, attractiveness to the opposite sex. So um, I, don't, I don't love that for purposes of our discussion because I do not think that the reason that we are strong we should admire strong women or should be strong women is so that we can be more attractive to men. That is, uh, I think, fundamentally not the case. Uh, but that's that's his specific uh, issue he's trying to push in on is don't be afraid to be strong because of how men will feel and men don't be intimidated by strength. So it, it is couched in those terms. But I actually like um, what he uses to describe strength. He has three points. Uh, the first example is that strong women expose evil men. Um, it's an interesting choice of verb because she's pointing, he's pointing here to the story of Jael, who doesn't so much expose an evil man as she does drive a tent peg through his temples. So not really what I think of by expose, but um, she, is, she is confronting evil. She is opposing evil, is I think what he's trying to say. Uh, his second point is that women, strong women, rebuke good men. So oppose those who are evil, as we see in Jael. Um, uh, like I said, impaling uh, Sisera, uh, but then rebuking good men. And the example he uses here is Abigail confronting David uh, when in his haste um, he is off to kill Nabal. And she very wisely uh, counsels him not to do that. Uh, so she, he is a, he's a good man, but she still rebukes him when he is in error. Uh, and then strong women raise believing men, uh, pointing there to uh, Lois and Eunice, uh, the, the grandmother and mother of Timothy in the New Testament. Uh, and so I would say with a little bit of massaging, I think these are good categories. Uh, I think, first of all, that last one, I would want to say before you say raise believing men, um, uh, I would say make sure that we're being clear. What this means, I think, is, is in terms of discipleship, uh, that is strong Christian women raise up other Christians and make disciples, um, whether that is their own biological children, children they are in ministry with, um, just younger believers who are also adults. I think all of those would qualify. Um, and then also for all three of these categories, I would expand it to just be people as opposed to men. So presumably a strong woman would not limit her opposition of evil to only evil men. She would also oppose evil women. And if it was Jezebel who had landed in JL's tent, sort of disregarding limitations of time and space, hopefully she would have maybe responded similarly, um, and also rebuking good um, persons when they are in error, whether they are men or women, um, and then raising believing men and or women, uh, as, as the case may be. Um, so I think as long as you open that up, and, and again, I think it's that narrow focus is specifically because of the purpose of the article, that is men 
be advised that a strong woman is not something that you should avoid. Um, so he is specifically relating it to how strong women relate to men. Um, I don't think he's trying to say that they don't relate to women. Um, so I think I would agree with all of that. Um, and I, I, I like that he focused on those aspects of strength that have to do essentially with moral strength rather than saying uh, they're really good at tending to their house or something similar, which we can sometimes see that sort of language coming out of Christian circles. So I really appreciated the, the moral strength that was highlighted there um, and the teaching that is the, the raising up of disciples. I'm not entirely sure how this list as it's given differs from what strong men would do. Um, so I don't know how what JL does to Sisera is all that different from what say Ehud does to whatever the name is of the king that he kills. Um, he also uses somewhat deceitful means to approach the enemy of God in a vulnerable position and kills him. Um, I'm not sure how Abigail's rebuke of David um, is necessarily that different from, say, Nathan's rebuke of David, um, confronting him when he is in error, despite being a, a good man. Um, and I couldn't think offhand of a specific scriptural reference. I'm sure there are some for fatherhood where someone has specifically raised up um, good sons. All I could think of was bad examples um, of fathers who failed to raise their sons in the faith. Um, but I'm sure there are, certainly are. There, are. there are men who also raise believing men and women. So I'm not entirely sure that this is so much a description, as we said in the last, uh, in our previous uh, piece, that this is so much a description of what it means to be a strong woman or girl as just what it is to be a strong person, a strong believer, um, someone who confronts and opposes evil, who rebukes uh, wickedness in good and who uh, makes disciples. Janie? I think there's, I think there's a difference in the approach. The essence is not, the essence is the same. The rebuke is the same. The uh, correction is the same. But um, Abigail approached David with food. <laughs> she packed up snacks, uh, not just enough for him, but for his men as well. Mm -hmm. um, Jael made sure that Cicero was comfortable. She fed him too. And she fed him. She brought, she brought milk and, and fed him and made sure that he was nice and comfy before she drove the tent peg through his head, whereas Ehud, it was Eglon, I believe. Eglon yes, was the king's name. Right. So Ehud approached Eglon very straightforwardly and says, I have a message for you, O king. And the king sends everybody out, which was really stupid. And then um, Ehud just went right to it. Um, so I think it's the approach. Mm -hmm. and, and again, with Lois and Eunice, it was a uh, probably a matter of modeling. Of course, a man does that too. But women just do it differently. They do the same thing, but they do it differently kind of a maybe uh, not so direct, a little bit uh, of a roundabout approach, mm -hmm. maybe. So that's that's all that I would suggest there. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about that, and my, my where I sort of, I'm always a little bit uncertain is how much of the difference of approach is demanded by differences in power. So, you know, yes. um, so, you know, yeah, there's a difference because you're, you're jail. You cannot take on Sisera in hand to hand combat, uh, as, as we'll be talking about in a minute, right? There are uh, limitations right. <laughs> in, uh, in physical capabilities. Um, and so if you're Abigail and you're, you're nobody, you're not a prophet of the Lord. Um, you know, what are the means available to you to rebuke a good man? Uh, what are the means available to you to oppose evil? And so I don't. I want to think well about which differences are the result of those power 
differences, and if those power differences are addressed, the differences in approach recede, um, and which differences are actually inherent to the nature of men and women, if that makes sense. Right. Victoria, yeah. did you have uh, thoughts about this? I, I have related thoughts. Um, I think this is probably a good point in the conversation to say that both of these pieces that we've mentioned so far are several years old, and I would like to see uh, follow-ups on both of them for that reason. Uh, the bustle piece from 2015 um, and, and has a, a very uh, glowing view of, of Joss Whedon, um, which is obviously not current for most feminists now, um, given everything that his ex-wife has said about his manipulation of her and his use as his uh, as a kind of celebrity with feminist cred to to take advantage of young women. Uh, so I'd like to see more um, current coverage of that from that article. Um, what I would like to see more of from this article is given um, the the reckoning in the uh, evangelical church um, post me too and church too um, in places where women have rebuked the behavior of powerful men in uh, their own and other people's congregations. Um, I, I'd like to see um, the author of this piece, Paul, what is it? Maxwell. Yes. Um, I'd like to see Paul Maxwell respond to that because while I really appreciated um the depth with which he dug into biblical sources here in this piece and gave us really strong um, biblical examples, that also kind of felt a tiny bit like cheating to me because I, I wanted him to deal with um, things like church discipline. Um, if you're in a very complementarian congregation and a woman offers a rebuke, there are congregations in which she is not going to be listened to because she is a woman, probably. So I like I think that relates to what you were saying about power differential. Um, so I, I would like to see kind of post-Me Too um, layers uh added to this piece i think that would be really interesting and and still current i mean the um the argument between beth moore and uh owen striking yes um i mean that certainly speaks to this how, how much uh that back and forth is going on um is is she allowed to um rebuke him because she um, sort of is and is not a preacher um, is what do public rebukes on places like Twitter look like? Like, I, I just feel like there's a lot of um, meat in that issue left to be explored. Well, and I think that highlights a, a tendency that I think we should always look for in a lot of different contexts. It's one thing to look at Abigail and praise her for confronting David. It's a completely different thing to welcome with open arms, a woman in your congregation who's confronting you you uh, or someone else in leadership um, that um, while we want to look at the word and seek examples there, it can be easy to, to distance ourselves from that application in our lives. Um, and yeah, not to just tell women oppose evil uh, um, because if you tell them that, but then by your behavior, discourage that and don't respond to that, um, then that certainly undermines the, uh, the statements you've made, even if those statements are biblically correct. So um, I think it would be, it would be helpful to have a piece that sort of tries to reconcile the difference between lauding someone like Abigail 
um, and and the actual responses that that many women have had um, from leadership in churches that they've been a part of, um, where maybe their con- confrontation of leadership has not been celebrated quite as much as as we celebrate um, someone like Abigail. So that's a really a really good point. And it would be really interesting to see that more um, more updated uh, to reflect some of the information that's come out and, and the, the fuller picture of churches where those two things are not operating uh, in, in a consistent way, those two principles. So um, excellent point there. Uh, anything else on our Christian perspective on strength? Um, I will say, and again, this will be in our show notes, um, these types of conversations of what does it look like to be uh, strong or to be a strong woman uh, or to be feminine, uh, those those conversations have come up um, in several other episodes. Uh, so we've done a recent episode uh, on Captain Marvel that explored some of these uh, issues, uh, our episodes on uh, women in Star Trek, uh, on Dollhouse, um, and then an episode we did on femininity uh, for the City of Man podcast also covered uh, a lot of this stuff. So we'll be putting those uh, links to those in the show notes as well. But anything else on um, what it means to be a strong, uh, a strong character, a strong woman, strong girl from a Christian perspective before we transition to our next topic? All right. Uh, so our next uh, angle we want to look at here uh, leads very pretty naturally from um, what we were talking about uh, in the, the Desiring God piece, and that is how are strong girls like or unlike strong boys? Do we really just mean a strong character, or is there uh, a way in which girls are strong differently than boys are strong, uh, and, and what does that look like? Um, and uh, Janie is going to talk about a really great piece that she found for us. Um, Janie, why don't you tell us about that piece and how it relates to our conversation? All right. Um, I found this piece in Hornbook several years ago, and you want to talk about old. This piece is really old. <laughs> it was published in 1999, so that's how far back it goes. It's called Writing Backward, Modern Models in Historical Fiction. I was drawn to it because historical fiction was always my favorite genre growing up. And my first three published novels were all historical fiction. So um, I naturally wanted to read this. The author is Anne Scott McLeod. And um, her point has to do, uh, her point is mostly about historical fiction. It's not so much about male, male contrasted with female characters, but um, she mentions, she starts out saying that good fiction or good historical fiction is good fiction, and it's also good history. Um, And she notes a trend of what I would call politicization in uh, historical fiction, especially noticeable in female characters. Um, Her point overall is that this is bad history. Uh, A lot of what we're seeing in uh, historical fiction today is what we would project backward from our own values and our own perspective. We project all those things onto historical characters, and uh, she's reacting very negatively to that, and I've uh, always reacted pretty negatively to that, too. So this really resonated with me. Um, She gives two, well, actually more than that, but uh, two examples that I want to mention. One is a... um, historical novel by Avi, who has written, I can't, I've lost count of how many books he's written for, uh, of middle grade fiction, 
The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle. And when I first read Charlotte Doyle, I didn't read Charlotte Doyle as a child. I read it as a, as a grown-up. Um, and I thought, this is ridiculous. The story is about a 13-year-old girl who is sailing from Great Britain to America in the 1830s, I believe, 1830s, 1840s. And um, she's a very independent-minded young person, but uh, she falls afoul of the captain of the ship, and somehow he, he, he sentences her to uh, becoming a common sailor on his ship, which is outlandish to begin with. But she goes on to become a sailor <laughs> and handles everything that the men do. And um, Alexis and I were talking earlier, and Alexis mentioned, well, she seems to develop hard calluses on her hands in a matter of less than two weeks. They say, she says two weeks later. Two weeks later. she had feet like leather. Uh-huh, right. So she's, she's climbing the, uh, she's climbing the uh, yard arm. She's letting out the sheets, and she's uh, reefing the sails and all of that, like, which is a challenge for a full-grown man. And I'm thinking this is just stupid. So uh, the book has its virtues. It's very entertaining, but as history, as history, it is bunk. It is a deliberate attempt to present a girl in a man's role and to kind of say that girls can do anything that boys can do. Um, the other example she gives is Catherine Called Birdie, which is by uh, Karen Cushman, and uh, it was published. It was a Newbery Award. No, it was a Newbery Honor book. In the mid-1990s, I'm thinking, um, I read it around that time, and Catherine is a um, spunky heroine. She lives during the, uh, I think, 1400s, 1300s, something like that, Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, and she has been promised to marry a rich landowner nearby, and of course, he's an old guy, and she can't stand it. She can't stand the thought. Uh, she eventually kind of becomes resigned to her fate, but she's very feisty. She fights it the whole time, and uh, the her suitor conveniently dies toward the end, so she gets to marry his son instead, who is much more presentable. Okay, so it's fun. It's uh, entertaining to read, but as far as the attitudes presented, what's going on in Catherine's head is not something that a medieval girl would be thinking. Uh, most of them, you know, the, this is what they would expect. They would expect an arranged marriage. Anyone who was living at the time would expect an arranged marriage, probably not to someone they liked that much, and it was just the way things were. So um, the whole article is about projecting contemporary values onto historical characters, and she makes the point that uh, these characters are more like time travelers. They uh, appear in their own time as as apart from it, uh, you don't get any sense that that these main that these protagonists are of their time. They seem to be apart from it, and they are expressing attitudes that it would be very difficult for a person who is actually living at that time, especially a girl, to have. Uh, so rather than portraying strength as it would appear in a person of the time, these authors are projecting our current attitudes of strength onto these characters. I, I had a current example, too, of a book that I read recently. It's called Voices, The Final Hours of Joan of Arc by David Elliott. And in many ways, it's an excellent book. The poetry is beautiful. It's all told in verse. 
Uh, but one thing that bothered me about it was the character of Joan. And we don't really know that much about her, except that we do know she was extremely religiously motivated. Uh, but in the book, she is portrayed as very religious at first, and then she gradually loses her faith. And, and you get the sense that what motivates her is just pushing back against the stereotypes that she has been typecast as. And this that's is what horrible. This is what a contemporary woman would be thinking. Uh, and it's not necessarily what Joan herself would have been thinking. Joan was an anomaly, you know. There were there was nobody else like her at the time. But I, she is cast just as so many historical and fantasy and contemporary female characters are, as a in, in a particular mold that suits the author's values and not so much the character's values. So these characters are not allowed to be themselves. They are forced into being something else, that what we want them to be. And you don't really learn anything from that. You don't learn from reflections. <laughs> so um, that's, that's the gist of the article. I added a little bit like a, my, my um, quick capsule review of voices there. Uh, but that's what the article is about, and it really resonated with me. I've kept it all these years. Victoria, I know you have thoughts. What do you think about the piece? Uh, I do have many thoughts. Uh, I loved it. I thought it was great, um, and not just because the thesis of the article is basically the thesis of my doctoral dissertation. So uh, ah. <laughs> I, I, I appreciated that validation of seven years of work. Um, but I, I liked the idea that um, that it, it kind of gave um, reasons for um, – why we like to write and read books this way, the, the fact that the ways that we um, provide presentist points of view or the ways that we ahistoricize or revise um, these texts says much more about us um, than it does about the people we are um, the characters we're writing or commenting on. Um, and I, I like that kind of pointing the finger back at us. I think it's an important thing to do. Um, I wanted to quote one thing from uh, from the piece that I thought was just such a perfect mic drop. Uh, Didacticism dies hard in children's literature. Today's publishers, authors, and reviewers often approach historical fiction for children as the early 19th century did as an opportunity to deliver messages to the young. Bending historical narrative to modern models of social behavior, however, makes for bad history, and the more specific the model, the harder it is to avoid distorting historical reality. Uh, I'll, I'll talk more about this next time um, when I when I dive into the Lisa Klein novel. But um, this is basically what I argue in my uh, dissertation, which is about um, young adult novels for girls that adapt um, Shakespeare's plays. And uh, you get the first adaptations of Shakespeare for girls in the Victorian period. And these adaptations are very much geared toward um turning young girls into Victorian ladies who understand social mores and, and fit into certain boxes. 
And uh, what I ultimately argue is that as we progress through the 21st century, um, this box of acceptable femininity does not get any bigger. It's still just as small. Um, it's just more oriented to the left politically. So it's, its viewpoint changes, but the uh, number of acceptable femininities does not. Uh, so I, I think that's um, also something that's, that's going on uh, in this piece, and I really appreciate it. Um, how articulate McLeod was about that. I, I appreciated too the point that by by clothing modern attitudes in this historical um, garment, uh, they actually actually weaken they weaken their character. Certainly, as, as you mm -hmm. were saying, Janie, they're not as strong. But I, I really like the point that that McLeod makes that. Um, uh, that this actually ends up being an indictment of anyone who doesn't rise above their circumstances in improbable and, and impossible ways uh, that she right. says. Uh, so there's a point where she says uh, it can't of course be true and wasn't that all or even most slaves and women uh, rebelled openly, let alone successfully against the legal and social limitations put upon them. Uh, moreover, resistance takes a variety of forms, not all of them straightforward. Some of them not even conscious. A literature about the past that makes overt rebellion seem nearly painless and nearly always successful indicts all those who didn't rebel. It implies subtly but effectively that they were responsible for their own oppression. Um, yes. So when you when you write a character who overcomes all of those odds and is free, that, that you want to be conscious of the way that are you implying that everybody else who was not freed it's their own fault because they could have just easily done whatever your character did and it actually reminds me of the way we want to talk about things like um in our christian walk fighting finding vic victory right over whatever it is victory over sin or circumstances or illness uh that you want to be sure you are not telling someone by the way you're explaining prayer or or the importance of faith that you are not saying and so if you continue to struggle, it is your own fault for being weak of faith. It is your mm -hmm. own fault for not praying away your relative's cancer uh, or giving enough to the ministry. Um, that that same current sort of thread runs through uh, of using a success story as an indictment of everybody else. And if you are trying to write a character, I mean, sometimes you're trying to write a unique character, someone like Joan of Arc, and the point is nobody else is like that. But but that you want to be very conscious of what what it really was like to be to be then uh, and and what it would look like to uh, to have those attitudes um, because yeah you you wouldn't um, you wouldn't we just sort of think oh well, if I lived then I would have been as enlightened uh, maybe quote in quotes enlightened as I am now um, yeah that enlightenment idea. Can we talk about that for a second? Yes, like yeah, I, absolutely. I feel like this is such the the view that we're talking about um, is uh, about if we if people don't rebel in a certain way, then it's their own fault. Um, that's such a flat, easy view of how progress and time work historically, too. Right. I mean, in in that idea, time is just this straight. Um, upwardly slanting line, right? Right. Um, it's what I think about every time people, um, I'm thinking of, of Prime Minister Trudeau, but other people have made this argument. The, of course, I hold such and such viewpoint because it's 2018 or it's 2019. Right. Um, and I just, it's so, as someone with um, training as 
both a historian and a literary scholar, um, that's just a garbage point of view. Like it's so oversimplified um, and it completely overlooks um, people's everyday struggles. The idea that um, ideas that are progressive in a certain time are regressive in a different time, um, sometimes only months or years later, or sometimes by another group in the same country. Like it just that whole idea is so flattened out and makes me uh, very ragey. It's boring, too. It's, yes, it's just that. boring. <laughs> well, and I know we talked about this actually a little bit in our episode on Miss Fisher, um, the, the Australian television show, talking about, look, if you had a character from this time period who, for example, embraced birth control, uh, you were also talking about someone who embraced eugenics. And that was yeah. like a point that yeah. you made. Yeah, if they had any guts, they would have made Dr. Mack a eugenicist, but they didn't. Nope. Um, and, and so you have that idea. And I think it ties back sort of to what Janie was saying about the lack of intellectual honesty or of, of emotional honesty uh, being to some degree driven by the dollar. And that is by getting a book published. And if you want to write a book from a time period when they held views that are considered morally unacceptable now and you write your novel and the people in your novel hold those views, I could see a lot of publishers just saying, I'm not, I don't want to run the risk of people saying that we're yeah. encouraging uh, these out of date views about gender or about race or about autonomy or about anything. And so the only way you can then write historical fiction and, and feel like you have a good mm -hmm. shot at publishing is if you import whole cloth, modern sensibilities to whatever historical mm -hmm. era you're in and you just have, um, yeah, you have characters who are just spouting these completely anachronistic views. Uh, and again, I, I think there is a, a way in which the process is affecting that, that it's not just authors maybe wanting to tell those stories, but authors feeling like I can't write a story where my character, my good, admirable character holds bad views on race or gender or, that, uh, you yeah. know, indigenous peoples or, or whatever it is. That has already happened. Authors have withdrawn their books because they have been pounced upon by these roving Twitter gangs. <laughs> or uh, uh, or look at the, the backlash to Go Set a Watchman. Yes. Mm -hmm. When Atticus Finch, who certainly, yeah, would have had that racial opinion in that period, right. has that opinion, and everybody's like, oh, no, I named my kid Atticus. What am I going to do? <laughs> right. What's really sad about this is that it cuts off sympathy. We we are not encouraged to have any sympathy for people who lived at a different time and we don't we don't even try to understand the times that they lived in it's just that they're they're bad the whole kerfuffle about Laura Ingalls Wilder and removing her name from an award given by the ALA so dumb. last year was that's what it was about so there was no attempt made to understand what what the circumstances that, you know, the circumstances that she was living in. Right. I like to tell people times were hard. We do not understand how hard life was, even a hundred years ago, when you could you could lose your child for for any any trifling disease that came along. You know, you you had no you had no financial security. You had life was a constant struggle, and we just don't appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So it cuts off sympathy, and I, I think if we if it cuts off sympathy for people in the past, it cuts off sympathy for people in the present too. And mm -hmm. that's one reason why our 
our discourse is getting so restricted and just kind of um, a checklist of approved attitudes that changes every few months. So, you know, you don't even know where you stand. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> this resonated very deeply with me. And uh, I think it has consequences beyond historical fiction, obviously. And well, I, I think, think, too. Sorry, oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> uh, I think it it's so arrogant, like this this mm -hmm. presumption oh, true. Very that, much. that we we must know best because it's 2019 or whatever. I mean, I think there is a lot to learn from the ways our attitudes have changed. I mean, I, I am opposed um, at the removal of Laura Ingalls Wilder's name um, from uh, from that award. What mm -hmm. I'm not opposed to is having a discussion um, mm -hmm. of how our attitudes have changed towards sure. Native Americans. Um, right. Let's talk about um, – as a disabled woman, I have a lot of opinions about how blindness and disability are handled in those books. Um, mm. So, I mean, talking about how those attitudes have changed and um, and why they're written that way in that particular time, I think, is conversations we should definitely be having with our children. Um, but to just shut it down is mm -hmm. incredibly arrogant. Well, and it, it I mean, it's arrogant also because we miss out on the opportunity to be reminded hey all these people they were wrong about some things and these people they were wrong about some things and these people they were wrong about some things and when we perhaps die we're going to be I, wrong about a lot of things to people in the future too like that's going to happen to us I, yep yep <laughs> and 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 reminds me i think there's a c.s lewis quote about that where he talks about different mm -hmm. eras that have different right. sins that they sort of oppose well and different or maybe not even well but that they oppose strongly um and and then other sins that they they fail to oppose and so he will specifically say you know this other era they got this thing wrong but they were fighting this other sin and here we are being permissive of this sin and fighting something else or whatever um so so yeah that that lack of of humility in the scope of history uh uh certainly and then, yeah, like you said, foreclosing that conversation. And actually, I mean, that's a, it's an entire conversation that goes far beyond, uh, as you said, far beyond the literary mm -hmm. realm, where you can see an impulse towards foreclosing conversation rather than engaging with opposing viewpoints and using that as an opportunity uh, to learn and to grow and to, to see what other people are, are thinking and understand where they're coming from. Instead, oh, that might be... Um, you know, there, there's something ugly there, there's something unpleasant there, and so we will just forestall that entire... Um, entire line of discussion um so yeah there's i mean it's, it's it was a it's a great piece and it, it made me think a lot about a lot of different things um i wanted to take it we're, we're running a little bit long on time but i wanted to take a minute here and and at least talk briefly about um interactions between uh, boys and girls in fiction um and uh particularly may, maybe what that looked like um in some of the classic works as opposed to what we see maybe in, in some of the, the stories that we read today. Uh, Victoria or Janie, did you have specific thoughts you wanted to share on this? Uh, well, just briefly, I'll share uh, going back to that book that affect me, affected me so profoundly as a kid, The Silver Sword. The strong, the Ruth is the lead character, I believe, but the other characters have very her, her antagonist, I suppose, is a uh, younger boy named Jan, who is an orphan, and he she takes him under her wing. But the, throughout the book, they are going back and forth, uh, just striking sparks off of each other. She is the strong, steady presence, and he is the jumpy, um, uh, very brilliant in a way, but... Uh, 
unstable presence, and she calms him down. And I, I really enjoyed that, even as a child, I enjoyed that interaction between them, is how she became a steadying influence on him, um, and he eventually responded. It took him a long time, but eventually he responded very positively to that. It, it, it made an impression on me about the kind of power that a girl character can have and a, a, that a woman can have. Victoria, did you have thoughts on the, the differences between male-female relationships? Uh, I will say that one thing that I think is different in the YA novels of today um, than earlier ones is um, I don't know if it's because of movie tie-ins or um, other merchandise or marketing or just assumptions about what it is to be a teenage girl now, um, but I feel like newer YA is much more romance-centric and uh, specifically like love triangle-centric uh, than some of the earlier stuff I read when I was growing up. I feel like when you talk about relationships like um, Anne and Gilbert in Anne of Green Gables or Laura and Almanzo in uh, the Little House books or uh, even Joe and Laurie, um, which the Hornbook piece mentions and we didn't talk about in Little Women. Um, like those romances are there and they're an important part of the plot, but also the female characters who are strong have lives outside of those romantic relationships primarily. Mm. Um, whereas if you think about something like uh, Twilight or The Hunger Games or, though it pains me to admit it, uh, my beloved Harry Potter, because uh, I'm exactly the right age um, to be deeply obsessed with those books, um, <laughs> th there's a, a kind of eclipsing of the female character's kind of internal world where it gets um, – it's just all about this love triangle. That's the thing that brings the readers in. Um, and I, I think that young women are worse for that emphasis. I think that um, it's good as a young woman to know that you are a varied person, um, that you have other relationships in your life that bring you meaning and happiness, that uh, romantic connection is not the be-all and end-all um, of relational connections in your life. Um, so I, I feel like we've gone in a uh, a bad direction that way. And I wonder how much of that, um, I think you're 100% right, and I wonder how much of that we've got a sort of a cart and a horse situation because I know uh, it bothers me to no end the sort of early romanticization of boy-girl friendships. Um, so your five-year-old comes home from kindergarten and you ask them if they have a boyfriend or if they have a girlfriend, that kind of thing just I have a very visceral reaction to that. We actually talked about it even a little bit in the uh, episode "Baby, It's Cold" on "Baby, It's Cold Outside," talking about uh, one of the music videos where they had the small children acting out the parts of the "Baby, It's Cold Outside" duet, and it just that idea of putting that kind of role playing onto them so young when that doesn't need to be an element of it at all. But that early romanticization of those relationships, um, yeah, how much of that is because they see it in. Uh, in media, in literature, in film, in television, whatever, um, and parents are being shaped by that, and how much of it are, are they seeking it out in those forms of media because their parents and their peers have been telling them uh, that, you know, they need to be finding a boyfriend when they're seven or whatever ridiculous age. So um, 
I feel like there's, again, sort of a, a ripple effect one way or the other with, with culture and with the literature there. Um, but, but definitely a good, a good reminder, um, to not, to, to make a strong real character who is more than just their relationship. Because as you said, there are not, I hope there's not very many people who are just their relationships walking around. <laughs> I don't think I know any, most of the people I know have, as you said, you know, robust internal lives and other relationships and other things that they care about. Yeah. Uh, other stuff. Their romantic, yeah, <laughs> romantic there, partners. There is other stuff. Families and hobbies and all that other stuff. Yep. What's interesting is that you're right, that there, there is this strong romance angle, and there are a lot of triangles in young adult fiction, but it seems like in later on in fiction for women, a lot of fiction for women is about becoming disillusioned with romance or disillusioned with the marriage or disillusioned with the, uh, with the man in your life. Um, and so, yeah, I can see, you can kind of see where that destructive angle leads when your relationship becomes everything of course of course it's going to disappoint you Mm -hmm. but it's interesting that you see that in published fiction today you see that that exact tangent played out and nobody seems to recognize it all right well anything else on our discussion of strong boys and strong girls and what they have in common or are or sort of different um before we move on to passing on all right. Hearing nothing, let's go ahead and move on to the recommendation portion of our podcast. Uh, we're going to ask our panelists today, uh, in addition to their normal passing on, um, if they have something uh, to maybe recommend um, a, uh, a novel uh, that is a work of fiction at the middle grade or young adult level uh, for our readers if they're looking for such a, a title. So, Victoria, why don't you go first? Okay. Uh, so, Alexis, you mentioned the Captain Marvel episode earlier. Um on that episode, I talked about how much I like um, a mighty girl.com. We talked about an article from that site and something that they do every year is uh, a yearly book list of uh, books for and about mighty girls. Um, that is, you can sort of cut into the list a variety of different ways by reading level, by um, age, by topic, Um, So you can find um, the right book for the strong girl in your life. So I'm recommending their uh, 2018 book list, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And um, I'm cheating for the novel recommendation because I'm just recommending the entire Harry Potter series with (laughs) with the caveat that – that uh, you pay close attention to the female character development that the movies um, omit, I'm pretty sure on purpose um, because it's too complex for them to deal with, particularly in terms of um, Jenny Weasley's maturation as a character. She starts off as this kind of stammering, uh, love-struck little sister who's in love with Harry, and Harry only sees her as Ron's little sister, and then uh, that falls away, and she becomes um, just this incredibly self-possessed uh, woman who um, who makes a name for herself in a group of boys, both because she's raised in this um, sort of passel of brothers and because she distinguishes herself as an athlete on the Quidditch field. Um, and she balances that with um, – what becomes a really nuanced, emotionally interesting human um, romantic relationship with Harry, where she 
many times has to tell him, like, uh, get your head out of your own butt, actually. Like, this is not just all about you. Um, and she's kind of the only person who can stand up to him in that way. So uh, read Harry Potter for Jenny Weasley's character evolution. All right. Janie, what are your recommendations for us? Um, I would like to mention first that I have a book review website that I write with two or three colleagues called redeemedreader.com. We review a full range of books, so that's how I, that's really how I come by my knowledge of contemporary fiction for children. Um, I actually have two, two novels that I read fairly recently. One is called A Lovely War, and it's by Julie Berry. Uh, Julie Berry is a very interesting writer for young adults. So this is, this, I would say this is the upper range of young adult. And, um, I, I really liked it. She brings in some mythical elements. It has a World War One setting. Most of the action takes place during World War One, so there's a historical fiction again. Naturally, I'm drawn to it. But she brings in some mythical elements. Some of the uh, Greek gods are involved. But I like it because it's a very mature view of romance and the way that romance, that love develops between people who are, who are very much... Um, individuals. These, these are people who have a life apart from the relationship, like we were talking about a little while ago, and how their, how their uh, emotional attachment develops and the kind of struggles that they go through and what, uh, what true love really is. And uh, there's the war background. But she just ties all these elements together so well. I highly recommend that for, um, I would say, older teens. And for slightly younger teens, uh, there was a book that came out last year called You Bring the Distant Near. It's by Mitali Perkins. Uh, Mitali is a, um, she's a, she's Indian. She is uh, Bengali. And her family uh, immigrated here when she was uh, eight or ten or something like that. She was fairly young. Uh, you Bring the Distant Near is kind of autobiographical. She writes about a girl somewhat like herself who immigrates to America. She is very strong-willed, uh, very intelligent, very assertive, and over the course of the book, she actually becomes uh, softer and more sympathetic, but still in a very, um, very individual and unique way. And there's actually a Christian conversion involved. This book was very highly praised. Um, which is surprising because it is very explicitly Christian. So you bring the distant near. It's kind of a family saga too. There are um, uh, there's a corresponding story with her older sister, uh, and they go their different ways. But um, it's it's well worth reading. Wonderful, thank you. Um, I have a couple of recommendations. One is a more humorous piece from the Toast. Um, uh, the the late, uh, late lamented the toast. R.I.P. Um, the toast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's specifically uh, called uh, A Day in the Life of an Empowered Female Heroine. And this is sort of highlighting Victoria's earlier point that the box hasn't gotten bigger for, for a female character. It's just shifted. Um, and, and, and it's actually one of the, the points that, that I think we've sort of talked about here some today and, and that we talked about some in our, our episode on femininity um, of trying to write strong uh, allow women to be strong in different ways without requiring them to be strong like men in order to be strong, if that makes sense. Um, but anyway, she, she highlights, um, uh, or the, the author highlights in, in 
typical brilliant terms, um, some of the uh, the contradictions and uh, the silly stereotypes that we have connected to uh, what we now think of as an empowered female heroine. Uh, it's, a, it's a delightful and enter entertaining, but also kind of revolting because it's true. Uh, peace, as again, is often the case <laughs> with the toast. Um, and then also another book list, um, uh, sort of along similar lines to uh, the one at A Mighty Girl, which is a fantastic uh, resource. Uh, both their Facebook page and their website are fantastic. But uh, Read Aloud Revival um, has another book list, um, specifically uh, one that's called Books Girls Love That Aren't Just For Girls, um, that's broken up by age uh, range. Um, so you can find some titles there um, for uh, for the girls in your life. And again, their, their idea is that girls love them um, because, you know, at some point we, we do need to acknowledge that, you know, I have friends with daughters and they talk about they had to read Pinkalicious however many hundreds of times and you might want them to read some other more you know, modern, appropriate, uh, strong girl title, but sometimes they're just going to like what they're going to like. Um, anyway, this is a list of books that girls like. They're not just for girls. And she does have a companion list. Um, if you are someone looking to shop for boys, there, there is a companion list on books that boys love that are not just for boys. So, uh, that's another book list. My novel recommendation, um, incorporating some of the fantasy elements that I loved from dealing with dragons, um, with some of the, uh, physical adventure that I'd loved. I guess I confess I did love the true confessions of Charlotte Doyle when I was a child. <laughs> I did not realize I was not well-versed in the, the realities of sailing in the 1830s. I <laughs> uh, did not notice all of those ridiculous elements. I just loved the, the ripping good yarn of the story. Um, uh, and, and, but the title that I would recommend that has sort of weaves those together along with um, a boy-girl friendship uh, that, that seems like it's headed towards a, a romantic relationship, sort of in the vein of, of uh, say, Anne Shirley and Gilbert Blythe. Uh, but the, the book is Rania, the Robber's Daughter by Astrid Lindgren. Um, people may be more familiar with her better-known work, uh, Pippi Longstocking, uh, or even with uh, The Children of Noisy Village. But uh, Rania, the Robber's Daughter, um, she you know lives uh, in, in a castle with a uh, a robber chieftain and his clan and there's a boy who is the son of the the uh opposing robber chieftain clan um <laughs> and they live near a woods that's full of all kinds of creepy things like evil gnomes and harpies and i don't even remember what all but um it's just a, a fun fantasy fairy tale sort of setting um uh, but I don't think transgresses too much the, the, the limitations of time and right. space and, and human <laughs> development or anything like that. It's for fun. It, it is. It's, and I, I mean, I, Astrid Lindgren does great work. So um, that would be my novel recommendation. Uh, and as I uh, mentioned, we'll also drop into the show notes links to the various other episodes um, that, that relate to our conversation here today. Uh, with that, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and J.B. Cheney, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in next month when we'll discuss Lisa Klein's novel Ophelia and its film adaptation. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.